Everyone loves movie trailers, except when they give away the plot of the movie. But how often do you think about where those trailers come from? Most people think movie studios make them, probably cut by the editor who edited the movie, right? It's actually almost the opposite of what really happens. When a distributor or studio is ready to market something, they turn to highly specialized trailer agencies to make the trailer. The Refinery, one of these trailer agencies, have an online training program that teaches you how to get a job at a trailer agency. The program walks you through the process of making an actual movie trailer using the same project files that the real editors use. And at every step of the way, you get feedback from real trailer editors who work at the Refinery. Then when you submit your final movie trailer, they review it. And if they're impressed, they might invite you in for an interview to work at the refinery. The program is called The Art of the Trailer, and one graduate has already earned a full-time junior editor position at the refinery. You could be next. You can check it out at maketrailers.com, and if you use the promo code MMIH, you'll get 20% off for a limited time. Learn how to become a pro trailer editor and make a movie trailer under the guidance of real trailer editors at maketrailers.com. That's maketrailers.com. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Brussel, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, DVD, Tubi, Amazon Prime, all the places. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has directed two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. And I'm currently in pre-production on my third feature, Best Friends Forever. I'm a producer's rep who used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome three-time feature film writer and director Joss Stifter on the show to talk about directing his latest short film, Little Lucha and the Big Deal, and how he has managed to keep his filmmaking career going over the years and have kids and make so many features. That's what I really wanted to know about, and I think he delivered. After that, we play another round of Y'all the Expert. But first, Liz, how are you doing today? I'm great. We are on the precipice of sending our first offer to our first cast member, yeah, I'm very, very excited. It's someone that I've wanted to be a part of our production for a while. And my producers agreed and the casting director agreed. And it's not like the lead lead role. It's like kind of a supporting role. But either way, we all agreed. And I love her. And I wrote my letter to her. And we'll see when we get to, you know, she may say no, but I'm just excited that we all are on the same page. That's very exciting to be like in agreement, taking action for the film. That is amazing. Yay. Obviously, you can't say who it is, but it's it's somebody that no. you found through your casting director and somebody that you already knew you wanted or somebody that you like saw and was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. This person was there in the same orbit as the actress my casting director has recommended. But this is actually someone I think I could say this. I saw her in a live comedy show a few weeks ago, an improv show, and fell in love with her and have been watching her TikTok and <laughs> watching her Instagram. I went to see her again in another show, basically doing my due diligence. So it's someone that I actually put forward, but they're in the same vein as everyone else that we're looking at. Wow, incredible. Well, that's so great. Wow, you must be really excited. So has it, it's going to go out or it's about to go out? It's going to go out. We all agreed on the deal points. We just I just need two producers to say yes. And then my casting director is going to email it off. Probably I'm guessing probably tomorrow. So that's what's going on. And we'll see what happens. And then it's OK. Even if we get rejected, it's OK, because just making like the leap is like you know what I mean? It's like breaking the seal. That's such a horrible analogy. But you know what I mean? Like you have to kind of jump 
to get acclimated to the process of casting. And so this is our first jump. What are you up to? What's going on? What's your life? Yeah, I wrote another page a couple Woo-hoo! days ago. <laughs> that was nice. I feel like, ow, ow. you know, it's one of those things where I'm like, I wrote these characters that I had written in the very beginning of the process. So like they were like the first characters I invented for the movie. And I haven't really written for them in maybe a year and a half or longer. It's been a long time. Oh. Yeah, it's it's been interesting to try to come back to them and like figure out like what their uh, what their words are, you know, and how they are and how they interact. And I feel like I was very clear on them originally and like now i'm like a little less clear on who these people are and so like i'm trying to like rediscover them by rereading what i did before and then also just writing new lines for them yeah it's uh, it's been interesting but i feel like i'm I'm excited about it i i kind of feel like i'm a little worried this whole thing is like a disconnected piece of like big mess that needs to be like refused into one thing but i guess on the other hand it's like just moving forward on it at all is really great that's what revisions are for. Don't worry about that yet. Just get it out. Like we always say that, right? We always say vomit it out, worry about the coherency later and just get as many good ideas on the pages as, as are coming out of you right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's, a, that's awesome though. I don't know. Getting it Yay. out, I guess. Yay. Oh, someone from who works on the movie on the alternate, they just, you know, Instagram me the other day. They're like, Hey, I saw this article and it's about our movie. <laughs> and it was a what? little like thing from digital trends that was just like Aww. top three, you know, movies, sci-fi movies to watch in January. And we were, that's awesome. the cover photo. We were the <gasps> second movie in the list. So we weren't the first one mentioned. We were the second, but you were the cover. We got the, the cover. One. Yeah. Hey, it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like a Doctor Who documentary was the other one. And then some other genres like, you know, I know that movie. Doctor Who documentary. That's Matthew's film. Doctor Who Am I? Yeah. Right? Doctor Who Am I? That was that's yeah. who we were with. So as a former Whovian, I'm very aware of all the Whovian stuff out there. I was very honored to be included with something I'd heard of before. So that was cool. Yeah. So, yeah, so that was neat. That was like a little like boost to my confidence. Like the movie is out in the world doing its thing and people are finding it you know, and recommending it to other people. So, Hey, that was cool. But what else, what else is cool is our Patreon page. If you go to www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast, that is where you can support the show. Make sure that this thing keeps going and does not die a miserable death at some point. If you do know, donate one nine nine a month, you get access to the whole back catalog of episodes, which I need to put a whole bunch more behind the paywall. Now, now that we're in our, whatever this is, 10th season of the show. We're in episodes what? 450 through <laughs> whatever, 500. What? We broke, we basically broke it up into seasons. So like there's that, like every 50 episodes is a, is a season, which is like roughly a year of the show. So it's, it's not really a year because we haven't been doing this for 10 years. Yeah. But, you know, I think we've been doing it for like eight, eight plus years. So oh <laughs> it's God. definitely close to 10. But yeah, check that out. But without any further delay, Here's our talk with Josh Stifter. We are here with Josh Stifter. Welcome to the show, Josh. Give us your elevator pitch for your film, Little Lucha and The Big Deal. Ooh, I'm so terrible at these. Like, I've had to get really good at the recent projects that I'm actually taking out and, like, pitching around at 
actually getting the elevator pitch memorized and knowing how to say it like concisely and writing log lines and pitch decks. But Little Lucha is, it's a story about two wrestlers in 1980. One is a little guy, me, I'm five foot three, five foot four on a tall day. And, and my friend, Scarlett Moreno, who is a woman trying to be a wrestler in the eighties, which is, you know, a challenge also. So two wrestlers who are sort of outside more in the underground scene, trying to decide whether they want to continue on in wrestling, whether they want to continue in their art, which is something I really related to. And it's a, it's a dramedy, a lot of fun. And the two of us started it and Scarlett Moreno and myself, and then she, and then two of us directed it as well. Well, you should have a separate podcast on what makes a day a tall day, but instead uh, yes. we're going to jump to the next question. Which See if is, I'm feeling tiptoey. Yeah. How many days did you shoot? We shot over three days and then a pickup day, but there was a lot of pre-production on this one. There was, you know, we, we filmed most of it in a, we rented out this diner, like this 50s diner, and we used that for a two-day shoot, which was you know crazy in of, in of, and of itself because most of the time we ask friends for locations. Like we have a bar in Greywood's plot where I was just like, any bars in town want to let me film there? And they were like, if you come for Sunday morning and film for two hours, you got it. So that's what we did. This was like we actually went through the po- proper channels, you know, contacted them, paid. We actually paid for the locations. And then the, so that was the first two days. And then the third day we filmed at a wrestling ring. The opening of the movie takes place in a wrestling match. It's me getting tossed around. And I got to work with like a professional wrestler at learning how to do that without getting hurt, which was a lot of fun. And then we did a couple, we did a day of pickups where we filmed a scene on a motorcycle and went through all of that, Uh, you know, like getting it on a trailer and doing it, doing a legit shoot on a, trailer with lights and everything it was a lot of fun very difficult very very hard but it was a lot of fun and uh, you know i'm used to shooting i shot um, my movie the good exorcist which is a feature in 14 days shooting in three days for a short film that we were being much more particular about it was a very different very different experience than anything i've done before uh, i have a question about that but i'll save it for later <laughs> what was the rough budget of the short if you can say $15,000. Well, you know, you know how budgets are. It's all nonsense. But we did a seed and spark and raised after we had filmed those first three days. I had this idea for the motorcycle sequence that I was like, I want to film this thing like total old school, like James Bond style on the back driving, like cool flat shot of us on the motorcycle, me driving and her like wrapped around me. So you got like a little guy and this girl with a big, you know, hair and just looking awesome. So I wanted that moment. And So when we finished filming the first three days, we had paid for all of that out of pocket. And then we decided, well, why don't we do a seed and spark? We figure out what a legit budget is for what we filmed. Then we can pay ourselves back for what we paid in, you know, flights, rental of the locations. We can pay our cast and crew. We can pay and I can get this motorcycle scene I want to do filmed and and pay for Scarlet's flight, pay for the motorcycle, all that stuff. So we did a seed and spark and raised $15,000. Now, is that really what we spent on it? I don't honestly know. I just, that's an easy budget to say, but with these movies, I didn't pay my, I didn't, my editor didn't get paid a ton. I would have edited myself if I would have had to pay because we couldn't afford to pay him a ton, but we paid $2,000 for a song, which is like mind blowing to me, but we just got this idea that we wanted a song. We wanted to license it for two years and we you know, went through the proper channels. We didn't just throw it on there and pretend like we got the rights. We actually got the rights to it. And for a two year 
festival run. And then once the festival is up, we'll decide if we want to change it or, you know, do something else. But it was a very different experience than the low budget, you know, ask friends for music and sign a piece of paper that is it really legally binding. I don't I don't really know. <laughs> you, have a, you know, you get the you find the paperwork online and you have a friend sign that you can use the music. So at least if he tries to take it back, you can have an argument. But yeah. Our next question that we always ask is what's the origin of the idea? But I'd love to kind of sneak in a twist to that question, which is like, is it an analog analogous idea like is and what is the origin of yeah it's interesting because i was just talking to a friend last night another filmmaker friend about this last night and it wasn't it was sort of the opposite so i wrote this in 2017 scarlett moreno and i were on a reality show called rebel without a crew that robert rodriguez did and we had to make a movie a shot in 14 days we had seven thousand dollars that was it. We had to make a feature film with that. And Robert Rodriguez's crew filmed this whole thing. So the two of us did this whole process. And in 20, no, 2018, right at the beginning of 2018, we're at South by Southwest because the movies premiered during South by Southwest. And Scarlett and I were like, we had become like tight friends. We're, you know, best of friends now. And because we went through this insane experience of being on reality TV, like it was just a whole, the two of us were on the same schedule. So it became like this, you know, copacetic brother and sister relationship of trying to get through this whole process together and teaching each other as we went. I had like, I had a, I don't know how to do wardrobe. I've never thought about wardrobe in my life. Like, how do I ask a, a woman in the movie, like, can you supply your own clothes? Cause I don't have dresses. Like I don't have anything. So I would ask Scarlett these kind of questions and she would be like, how do I make someone stab someone? I don't know how to stab, like do a, a stabbing scene. So I would help her with effects stuff. I would help her with editing. So we formed this sort of relationship of teaching each other. And I was like, you know what, when this is over, we should like do that without reality TV following us around. Like we should make something together where I can teach you sort of how, how I direct and sort of my directing style and my editing style, how I, you know, edit while I'm film while we're actually in production. So I can kind of build characters and figure things out. And she, and then she could teach me how to act. I'll write it for the two of us so I can see how she acts and how I can learn a thing or two about performing. And to be honest, at the time, we kind of felt like we had made it. We were on Robert Rodriguez's reality show. Like it felt like all that hard work paid off all those years of work. It was all worth it. And then like the show didn't really go anywhere crazy. It was fine. Some people watched it, but didn't blow up. Our movies just Robert didn't do anything with them. They came back to us. We got the rights and they sort of I put mine out on trauma. They sort of just, you know, fizzled and we had to keep going. It wasn't like all of a sudden. They were knocking, people were knocking on our doors, giving us millions of dollars to make movies. We were still making no budget things. I went and made, I went and acted in a feature film that I directed called Greywood's Plot. And I learned how to act. I did weird stuff in there where I get like turned into a dog man at one point and got to get naked and bloody on a table. And like, it, I, I went through the experience of what it's like to be an actor in like the worst of situations because I wanted to put myself through that. And so when you know, the pandemic happened and we sort of everything kind of fell behind and we all fell into this slump of like, well, what do we do now? Like we're stuck at home. So I went and shot another movie by my literally by myself. It's called Scumbag. And I'm in post-production on that right now. Scarlett went and did a whole bunch of music videos and a whole bunch of other things. And we came out of the pandemic and I moved to Atlanta and we sort of got stuck. And I turned to my buddy, Daniel, who's my producer, best friend since we were in kindergarten. And I was like, well, what do we, what do we do? What do we, what do you want to do? 
And I was at that point where I was sort of like, I don't know if I want to do anything else. I think if I finish Scumbag, it's a miserable experience filming a movie by myself. Maybe I quit now. Maybe this is it. My trilogy of no budget rebel without a crew movies and I can walk away. And he was like, well, why don't we do a little Lucha and the big deal? Maybe that'll pick you back up. And so it ironically became this like full circle that I didn't write it about being the down and out. I actually wrote it from the opposite perspective, like stick with it, be hopeful. Like you've got this, you could make this rule. And then four years later, I'm like, I'm giving up. And I feel like the character in the movie and really related to it. And it actually kind of kicked my ass because I had to like edit this movie, go through the script again, reread it, perform in it. And it like really hit, it really struck a nerve with me where I'm like, emotionally, I'm connecting into it almost too much sometimes. But it was sort of a full circle thing. And as we finish it and as we get it out there, it's one of those projects that I'm like, wow, you know, I'm really, really proud of the fact that we followed through on something that something from four years ago that you've lived with. It's easy to be like, oh, we've grown so much or we don't have to do that. Or, oh, I don't like it anymore. I'm a different person. But we like followed through and actually made this movie. So you kind of answered this question a little bit, but like how long did you actually spend working on it from, you know, when you decided that, okay, I'm actually going to make this short film to it being released? Because I know you said you wrote it in like 2017, but like what was the point that your friend convinced you? Was it like 2019, 2020, 2020? No, so that was like, I mean, I started going back through messages and when things, because as we move into the year and we're doing a couple more features, this has all come full circle to us getting like back on the filmmaking train thanks to this movie and and some other things but in february so daniel and i i think daniel brought it up to me like december like as we moved into the new year because at the beginning of last year last christmas daniel and i decided like let's write two more scripts so over christmas like the christmas break from work we wrote two features we wrote one called abscess and one called eating crow and abscess is actually in pre-production now to be the biggest by far the biggest thing i will have ever made like <laughs> like not even comparable and and daniel was like let's finish these two scripts and so and we sort of made this pack so we both finished these scripts together and then as we moved into january and we finished them i'm like well no one's going to let us do these movies because they're million dollar movies like they're these are not our $2000 movies i mean they're just not they're not written like that we were like let's write real movies and I, he was like, or we kind of had this conversation about no one's going to let us make a $3.2 million movie if they see our $2,000 movie. Not that it's bad, but it's just not, it doesn't prove that we can do something bigger. So we wanted to follow the rules. In fact, it kind of goes against it. A lot of producers and people could look at it and be like, well, you guys aren't going to follow any of the rules we need to follow. Like there's no say, you guys don't know any of these things, even though we do that stuff for our jobs, we know how all of it works. We just don't because we are we like to just go make movies on the weekends. But we were like, let's do that. Let's follow the rules. Let's actually make something proper. And the easiest way to do that is a short film. And that's sort of how this came to be. So it really started in like January was Dan when Dan was like, let's let's do this thing. And then you know how pre-production goes. There's a lot of calling people. There's a lot of deciding, convincing Scarlett that we should do it. And I think the first email I, I could find was in February, like the first week in February that Dan and I messaged Scarlett and we're like, hey, do you want to have a phone call on Wednesday? And that was sort of when it all started. And then from there, I did a full storyboard animatic. So I actually animated like the whole movie. And then we found a DP. I've never worked with a DP in my films before. We've, I've always shot everything myself. And so we got a DP, we got like everything figured out. 
we started filming in April. I think we filmed in April, right at the beginning of April. And then sort of took a break to do the whole seed and spark campaign. That was about a two month process. And then we just wrapped, like I did a screening for friends and family, like, like literally like a basement screening, not like a theatrical screening, but had like family over and some of the people who had worked on it on Thanksgiving. So it's been a, it's been a pretty much a year long process, but you know, with all of the other things happening in there as well. And then if you could change one thing about the film, whether it was, I mean, I'm not even gonna prime you in any way. What would you change? Man, that's interesting. You know what? I honestly am so proud of everything about it. I, it's really, I don't think that there's anything that I would actually change per se. Like, I think I would, I would have done the process quicker. I would have focused more of our attention and been like, let's go all in on this for like two months instead of like six months spread out into a two, like from a two month process. But honestly, like there was nothing that I, I, there's not a shot in that movie that I'm not proud of, which says a lot. Here's what I would have done. I would have known the kind of actor I am sooner. I don't, didn't realize that I am not, I need to be like completely in character. And it's something I learned. Now they would all say like, Josh, you did fine. Don't worry about it. Like, it's okay. And I love my performance in the end, but on set, when I had my big monologue, I had memorized that thing. I knew the whole monologue. I, I was It was good to go. And the second Scarlett was like, hey, would you mind if I actually go behind the camera on this one and watch your takes and kind of see it versus sitting in on the scene with me because it's a close-up of me. So she didn't have to be sitting across from me. The second that she wasn't sitting across from me and I was like talking to the wall, I could not say my lines. I couldn't get them out. I just like blanked. And it was an interesting concept. It gave me a real huge respect for the like people who act to, to a green tennis ball, you know, like you see in like the green screen stuff where you're like, how, like it before I was like, that's gotta be easy. Like that all the pressure of acting with other people off of you. And the reality of it is I'm like, that is the hardest thing in the world to not actually be in the moment acting with someone. So I wasted a lot of takes with that. But yeah, the reality was I'm happy with everything about it. So I'm curious, just want to hear a little bit more about like your features. So like you had these two features that you made yep. and they came out and you said that like basically nothing happened. So I'm just curious, like now you're talking about making your third feature and that's in pre-production. It's going to be the biggest budget thing that you've done. Just like between releasing your features and getting into pre-production on your third, like what, what happened in that period to allow you to get into pre-production on your third feature? Dude, it's so, that's such a good question because the reality is, is like, I say nothing happened and I, people watched my movies, they did fine. Like it, it's just, it's low budget independent filmmaking. So when it's, when you're kind of expecting, like if you build it, they will come, you know, low budget horror, they will come. What does that even mean? You know, a couple thousand (laughs) people dug the movie. Like it's not made for a mass audience and there's no like, there's no, especially with with low budget filmmaking, you're putting it out on whatever distributor you can get. They're not paying you anything. It's not, I'm not making like a ton of money. I've always made a return on my investment, but my investment is nothing, like time. That's it, <laughs> it's just time. So I, I, I knew I was gonna make a return on my investment with The Good Exorcist because Robert was paying me to be on the show and I was like minimum wage, but at least I was getting something out of it. 
I, I was pocketing my per diem. I was just eating carrots and taking, they would give us a per diem every day for like whatever, a hundred bucks for food. I would take it, put it in my pocket and keep my per diem <laughs> to buy super eight. I always wanted to make a super eight short film. So I pocketed my per diem so I could buy super eight film when I got home. <laughs> just like, that's the kind of like filmmaker I am, I guess that I just use whatever I can. But honestly, what happened was, is we decided we needed to be, not rebels. We needed to go knock on doors and talk to people. And Daniel contacted a producer who is, he makes movies that are in the 1.5 to $5 million range. And basically was like, Hey, I mean, he, he contacted a few producers. Most of them didn't return his emails, but one was like, Hey, I'll, you want to hop on a zoom and talk? I can talk and I can walk you through the process of how my movies are made. And we just hit it off. We had a great conversation and I wasn't expecting anything to come from it. And he was like, Hey, send a, send me a script. And I was like, I have three. He's like, do you have any features? And I'm like, I have three features. I have a psychological horror monster thing. I have a dark sort of noir comedy, like a dark comedy, sort of a little bit darker than like a Coen brothers E type thing. And then I have an action comedy and he's like, all I can do is action comedies. Like he knows how to make money off of action comedies. He knows how to sell them, how to distribute them, how to get them seen internationally and make his money back and bring in funds. So he's like, send us the script. And I'm like, you know, of course they're like, well, it's in its first draft and whatever. <laughs> and he's like, just send it, man, just send it. So I sent it to him and he read it. And like a, two days later, he called me. He's like, this is amazing. He's like, I love this script so much. It's it's hilarious. It's stupid. It needs a ton of work, but let's see what we can do. And he's like, this is how much money you would need to raise in order for us to go into like actually getting this into the, the production, you know, like pre-production stage where, you know, paying for script analysis, paying for copyright of the script because we hadn't even copyrighted the script or anything yet. Like all of that stuff. He basically walked us through that. So we started that process. We found the funds to get going. And it's just been this amazing process of learning what it's really like to try to get a movie made, which has been essentially all year. But we're finally like hitting some spots where we're like, wow, this is especially with the strikes. It kind of screwed everything up. But we're finally at the spot where we're like, this is cool. Like we're we're there's potential happening. I don't have a question. Maybe if I start talking, the question will come. Yeah. But it's this idea of. Do you rebel or do you not rebel? Do you play the systems games or do you not? And I think the past two years, I was trying to play the systems games. I finally was like, I'll apply to these fellowships and labs. I had completely rejected them before. I preemptively rejected them thinking they don't want me, but maybe yeah. if I <laughs> want them, they'll want me back. And I so I, I did all those submissions this year and I got into development of some projects. And I have to say it made me embrace the indie world 10 million times more just because of the the letdown and the the really irritating time wasting yes oh system. my god yes <laughs> so i guess like i know you're you haven't made this third feature yet so it's like you don't know whether this all this effort's going to go forward to something substantial but are you feeling that at all or are you feeling everything has been meaningful and substantive i think both i think that there is an element obviously of like feeling like nothing is moving forward ever and yeah. and and the like my heart is forever in independent filmmaking the same way robert rodriguez when you talk to him you're like dude you never grew out of el mariachi desperado mode like you love that 
stuff. He like just watching him even on his, I mean, I was on the Alita set and the thing that made him excited was the fact that he had sourced like all of these props from like local mom and pop thrift shops. And he's like, look at, I saved all of this money. They were going to pay this. I'm like, Oh my God, you're still the same little indie filmmaker. At awesome. heart. And so to me, like that's a big thing that I've been struggling with that has given me sort of a, a negative. It's made me sort of hate the process because I see that the process is slow. The process doesn't always work out. I don't know if this movie is going to get made, but one of the things I'm learning to appreciate is, you know, doing the opposite of what your instinct wants. When you get notes back on your script and someone like writes a note that you're like, I don't think this character's motivation makes sense here. Instead of my natural instinct, which is like, F you. I know my characters. I've been living with my script. I'm like, no, you know what? Let's try to change it. Let's see what I can do. Let's play this game. Let's make everyone happy. And and it's a script that we just wrote this year. Now, it's a script I've been thinking about for a long time. In fact, the idea came from a story while I was on Rebel Without a Crew, which was one of our production people was, was telling me a story about how she got an abscess in her tooth. And it was over, I think she said it was over the 4th of July or something like that. And couldn't get the tooth pulled and was just like in agony the whole time. And I was like, that is the most painful movie ever. What if someone has a toothache over Christmas and then somehow ends up in the middle of like a gang war and like everything that can go wrong does go wrong. And so that's the script that we wrote. And it's just a, it's absolutely insane. And I'm super, super excited about it. But it's also one of those things where I, I, I am also writing other stuff. I'm also doing Little Lucha and The Big Deal at the same time. I'm keeping my indie spirit going and trying to like sort of motivate myself to learn new things on every project. So, you know, I'm I'm wrapping up post-production. It's I, I unintentionally brought this on myself, but I, I started, I filmed this feature called Scumbag, which is about a guy during like the apocalypse in a gas mask who, who bunkers himself into a basement and basically sits there like, you know, I, I grew up Lutheran. So he's like Martin Luther, like whipping himself and trying to figure out what his purpose of life is in this really dark, weird comedy while monsters are trying to get in. I shot the whole thing myself. No one else. I set up like monitors in my basement so I could see the camera, like what's on the screen and had these like rails, these like, um, what do you call it? Like, like re remote control or like automatic sliders so I could have camera motion in the movie with when I'm just filming it by myself. And it made me hate rebel filmmaking. This is the worst process ever. I literally everything by myself. And it's just, it's the most lonely, miserable process when you have no one, you can't sh like, I can show it to people, but they don't like, no one's going to care because they didn't work on it. There's not that excitement of like working on a project with other people. And it taught me that the reality of what I love about filmmaking is the sharing of creative minds or the sharing of creativity with other people. Like I can have an idea, but then the second I can bring someone else in and we can collaborate on a project, that's what I love. I love it when someone like my, my favorite moments are when I'm wrong and I like wrote something in a script. And one of the actors is like, I don't think I would say like, I don't think my character would say it this way. And I'm like, they wouldn't, what would they say? Like, let's do this. Like, <laughs> let's figure this out. Or like, you know, something technical goes wrong. The, the, 
uh, lav mic isn't working, something like that. And the no one can figure it out and everyone's coming together trying to get it figured out so we can move on with the day. Like that's the rebel filmmaking I like. <laughs> I just, I love chaos and that kind of chaos when it happens on set, there's like nothing better and no <laughs> one's gonna get, no one's gonna get hurt. Like it's, we're not, we're not doctors. We're not saving lives in that like immediate sense. So like when those things happen, I love that everyone coming together and collaborating to fix something. And then just in the end, like getting to see it together and sharing in that moment of like, we did a thing. We did a thing. <laughs> Dude, it's so funny that you say that, like a lab mic not working or like a gimbal malfunctioning is like my worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah, it's everyone's. And it's, it is a worst nightmare. That's why it's so awesome, because it, it's like I've, I have this theory that so I have like terrible night terrors and sleep paralysis. And I've gotten kind of over it as I, I've gotten older. But like when I was a kid, they were really bad. In fact, they got really bad again. I went through sort of a. I mean, we talked about it a little bit, but like a filmmaker depression where I was like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. This sucks. Like, I hate this process so much. And then the night terror started coming back. And I'm like, I think I just need anxiety. I need chaos in my life a little bit. And filmmaking, it's the most like <laughs> innocent version of that because it because and I've I've learned to like plan for it. Something is going to go wrong every day. So I build in time into my day for things to go wrong. If I think a scene is going to take me 45 minutes to shoot, I give myself an hour and a half because I know like it's going to go wrong. Something is going to go wrong, especially. And I like being on the reality show was the best thing that could have happened to me because of course that's all they want. They're like, they're emotionally, even if they're not literally like, like sabotaging, which I don't think they did. I, I truly don't believe they sabotaged my set at all, but I think they're looking for it. So there's a natural, like, you know, vibe of that. So if something goes wrong, how do we like, let's get the camera on it. Let's show what's going wrong. And, and obviously as a filmmaker, your eyes are like, what's the camera looking at? What's happening over here? And so being in that for my first experience, it made everything after that kind of easier in the sense of like, I'm just, if something goes wrong, the worst thing you can do is freak out. The best thing you could do is go like, okay, how do we fix this? And if we can't fix it, what can we change to make it what we need? I wanted to route us back to that filmmaker anxiety topic, but please go on. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's get there in a second. But I, this, this question is kind of related to something that Josh just said. It was, it's really boring questions, a really dry question, but you talked about the amount of money that you needed to raise in order to like get the the film into pre-production like what is that number and like what are all the things that are entailed in that in that in that raising of money i don't i don't actually remember that the the legit number with the bigger movie project and you know it was like because we paid people in different like tiers and so it was like going through the script process so we had like the script like legit reviewed and scored and like ranked and everything and then we went through a full budget. We had to pay the person to do like a full budget breakdown of the movie. This and is then, thousands of dollars. This is in the range. Yeah. Of yes, this is thousands of dollars, not like hundreds of dollars. This is like a bigger process. Right. Probably like five thousand to ten thousand dollars or something. Something like that. Yeah. I think it was like in the probably closer to the ten, but I again like it was raised in different increments and yeah. You could also do it in different ways. Like you can do it in ways of you know, you could find someone who is a line producer to, you know, who right. could do the budget and pay less or go to 
you know, someone who a producer like this person we work with did. And uh, I think I know what you're going to ask. I could just get, I could just answer that. We, we reached out to a bunch of producers because uh, IMDb pro is there. You can find people and you can do the research of how many people are like, who's making movies in the three to $3 million range. Like what are $3 million action movies and who are they making money? Who's making the, like the Bruce Willis movie that goes straight to Redbox five years ago or who's making the whatever and yes you could you could be like i don't want to make that kind of movie like i'm i'm not that kind of a filmmaker but at the same time it's like how do you know you're not how do you like you want to make a three million dollar movie you have a script that's like you think is in that range who's doing those who who's making who are the exec producers who are the studios i mean i think i think we reached out to like just studios and we're like hey we see you guys are making these kind of budgeted movies would you be interested in filmmakers who are interested in making that kind of thing? Here's our demo reel. Here's our whatever, which goes against my, to be clear, I didn't do any of that. I'm not that guy. I can't knock on doors. Like that was Daniel. I don't even know who he talked to, how he did everything. One of, one of the people, I mean, we talked to people who were on indie film hustle podcast. He has, uh, you know, he has filmmaker producers and filmmakers on there all the time who are talking about the movies they're making for these specific budgets and reached out to people who are on the show. That's fun. Well, the question I actually had was not how you found them. Cause that's, but that's a good question. I'm, yeah. I'm glad that you answered that, but raising $10,000, let's say is really hard. So how did you do it within a year? And like, what, what was your solution to like getting the money together to actually get this movie into pre-production? Honestly, friends who believed in us, like people who had made money in business and were, you know, willing to to put the money in, knowing we may never we may not make that money back fast. Like it could be years before they see a return, but they just believed in what we're doing as filmmakers and helped out. But, you know, that's sort of the same thing as the seed and spark where we you know, you guys know, do you know what seed and spark is? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I did did one for my movie, too. So, yeah. And so we we needed to raise fifteen thousand dollars, and you know we had the family who invested. We had you know people giving fifty dollars here, twenty five dollars there, whatever. But then we had some people who like literally dropped three. Like one guy dropped three thousand dollars. A dude I hadn't talked to in years. Who he's an independent filmmaker on his own. I had helped him on some poster work like ten years ago. Like I hadn't talked to this guy in forever, and. He gave us $3,000. I messaged, messaged him. I'm like, are you are you serious? Like, do you really want to do this? He's like, I believe in you. I want to be on your project as I just want my name on it as a producer. I believe in this. And I hope that it, it lets you know that I want to build a relationship with you as a filmmaker in the future as you move on to other stuff. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's the that's the world. Like, that's the proof of the work that we put in paying off and coming back to us through people who do like our movies and believe in us as filmmakers trusting that we will make something interesting to them. Well, well, I want to jump off from that because I think it is related to the earlier question. I mean, you're talking about a bunch of wins. Like I would say an ordinary human going about their world, having someone give them $3,000 would be a (laughs) giant boon to their ego, their lifestyle. And be like, someone believes in me, but I, but the same thing has happened to me and Ulrich where a lot of people from the community are supportive about what we do yet. Some, not Auric. Auric's really, he's like the most adorable optimist in the world. But for me, <laughs> I will focus on the negative, right? Always. I will be like, well, I'm not there yet. I There's so many things I want to do. It's not perfect. So 
and one of the impetuses of getting you on the podcast was to talk about the emotional life of the filmmaker. And, and you seem to be going through a little something, a little battle yourself. Does it have to do with progress in your career or is it something else? And why can't we remember all the good yeah. stuff? <laughs> the good stuff <laughs> hits and then just like it just it peters floats out. away. It's like, just yeah. like it literally. But then like it's like a butterfly that lands on your head and flies away. But every negative is like another bee sting that you can't get out. <laughs> like it's it's just awful the way you and, and the negatives. Sometimes they're like the simplest of negatives where you just literally hear a story about. Steven Spielberg making a movie when he was 27 and you're like, age, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah the age, game. age comparison, and, compare and despair. Yeah. And then then there's also the like, you know, I'm 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 teetering on the edge of 40 going like, man, I'm really good at my day job. But I, I specifically am at a day job where they allow me to go make short films for a week or allow me to go do stuff. I have a very it's a very like dream scenario yeah it's kind of a dream scenario but i don't <laughs> but i don't make you know the money i expected i would make by the time i was 40 and i you know there are things where it's like man what should i change should, should i do something different should i be focusing my attention on different things in my life i you hit this this wall where you're like you know i love playing guitar but if I have to choose between playing guitar and editing my movie, I'm going to pick I have to pick editing my movie every time because it has to get done. And a part of you looks at your guitar every day for 10 years and eventually you're just like, I want to play that instead of this. Like, I just, you know, like it, it's that's a, it's like a weird negative that's constantly hammering away at you. And it does. It like builds up to a form of depression. Like it literally the smallest thing can just be straight up depressing where you're like, I give up. I'm done. All of this progress I'm seeing. And actually, the other thing that I think is hard to understand is, yes, someone gave me three thousand dollars. We made money to raise. We've raised more money in this past year than we've ever, ever, ever raised. Like way more. I mean, way more in the sense of like you know, compared to a, like a, a, a hundred bucks for lunch, we made <laughs> thousands of dollars now. And so for me, it becomes like this pressure of now people are relying on me more than ever. I always had this thing where I'm like, I'm a filmmaker, but I'm, I'm actually like more of a artist in the past, like more, you know, or a hobbyist, I guess, if you want to be negative, it's more of like a hobby than it is like an actual craft. And it's funny because, because my brother-in-law just broke this down to me. He's like, you're so dumb. Like you edit for a living. You're like a legit professional at all of this, but you never see the professional side of yourself. You only see this like guy who's running outside with his camera filming a squirrel because he can fit it into a shot. Like that's my, you know, the artist part of me is always the one I'm looking at versus I I took this and made something out of it. I get paid to do what I love to do, which is hard for a lot of people to say that they, you know, get paid to do something that they practiced in high school, they worked at, and they really like love doing. I love sitting in premiere and just cutting footage and getting on a set with, you know, a construction worker who runs a, like I, I, I work a weird job. So I'll film like construction workers and cut that into like testimonial videos. And I love doing that. I get to take my art, the like interviews I've done for my own stuff or performances, the way I direct actors. And suddenly I'm talking to some guy who do doesn't really want to be in front of the camera. And I'm like, okay, now how am I going to get him to give a performance? And it's just a blast for me to do that kind of stuff. But with that being said, you know, it's, it's not, it's not the filmmaking. So the filmmaking side, this is the more I think about it and the more I'm like, 
Man, I it literally took me like you asked about how long it took to make Little Luch on the big deal. And the reality is, is I wrote it in 2018, March of 2018. It took me that long to make this short film. When you start to look at that, you're just like, my God, like, is anything ever does anything get done? Yeah. But on the other hand, you like decided to make it in like February of last year and it's already or this year and it's already right. done. So, yeah. <laughs> so right. On the other hand, that's like lightning fast. Uh, so, Compared to like, I took like four years to make a short before that I like shot. And then four years later it was done, you know? Yeah. So. It's, it, it's all like, I think it's all pers- your own personal perspective. So it is really, really tough because my personal perspective is always negative. <laughs> and, <laughs> I mean, I, and that's, I'm extremely positive now compared to who I was. And it's funny. Cause like I was a total pessimist. I was the most pessimistic dude on the planet. And in 2017 well like mid like end of 2016 because my son was about one years old i decided i bought a camera like when 4k cameras were just becoming like a thing you could afford to buy for like a couple grand i bought a sony a63 or a6500 and i was like all right now i'm gonna try filming stuff but my but my rule to myself was if i got that camera i was going to change my outlook on life and think positive when my mind went negative i was going to be like no positive and within the year i was on rebel without a crew making my first feature like graywood's plot had gone into production like i had all of this stuff happening in the same year and i was like wow the the positivity worked and then cut to now i'm like that or like six months ago negative me is back in full force being like you know calling calling dan on a tuesday night at midnight being like i'm done man i'm done i'm out of this like poor daniel has to deal with my mental breakdowns all the time (laughs) he's just like dude can you just pay a therapist it's like that 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 like mean like men will go make a film instead of going to a therapist type thing i call my best friend dan like crying to him but about how I got to give up. I got to be done. And luckily he's there to always be like, okay, if you want to quit, quit. That's the problem is a therapist would never say that. They'd be like, why do you feel like you want to quit? Dan's like, then quit, do it. <laughs> I'm like, no, I can't now. Now you, you threw it, it, threw it out there into the world. Now I got to go the opposite <laughs> direction. But honestly, like thinking positive was so much, it was so helpful to me to get to that stage where I was able to do what I always dreamed about. And I think that's another hard thing that it's difficult to explain to people because they look at it and they're like, man, you've done everything you wanted to do. Like everything you said you were going to do five years ago, like your five year plan, you went far and away past. Like if you had asked me my five year plan, I never would have finished as much as I did. But then five years later, you finished all of that and you're like, oh my God, I got to do another five year plan. Like, I got to do this all again. I got to level up past the level up that I've that I got to. Like, it always doesn't ever end and it can become a negative instead of looking at it as a positive of like, whoa, we get a new adventure. We get to do something brand new and cool. So, uh, like you just mentioned, you had you have a kid, too. Like, how, how do you manage to do all these things and be a father? Like, you know, you're just talking about your last year of like making your short film and then, you know, getting in pre-production on this other film. And and then not to mention that you made like two features also before that while you had your your, your kid. So, like, yep. how did you do that? How did you ma- like, you know, I have two kids. Liz just has two kids. Like, I'm trying to figure out how I could ever make a movie again in my life. It just seems impossible. So, like, so, how did you do it? Well, I have. So I have. <laughs> I have a couple things. So I have two children. 
one of those children was the reason why it all happened. So one of them was born in 2016. And that's when I realized like I had done everything on my bucket list. Like, like I had the family, I had the house, I had a full-time job, I had done everything, but the actual only thing on my bucket list that I ever wanted, like if you had, if you looked back at one of those like high school reports, that's like, what do you want to do when you grow up? The only thing I would have said was make a movie. Like that's it from my, from my childhood. All I wanted to ever do was make a movie. And somehow that's the thing I didn't do. So for my 31st birthday, that's what we did. Me and my friends went out in the woods and tried to make a movie. And we, for a whole week, and this goes back to the real reason why I'm able to do this is because my wife is like the most supportive human being on the entire planet. Like she, supports my creativity she supports my art now you know i have a i've always had a full-time job and she's been able to be a stay-at-home mom through the early years thanks to that and part of it is the fact that i'm the antsiest man on the planet so i can i have the energy thank god to work a full-time job and come home and edit in the evenings but i mean like literally when i was doing the good exorcist i was editing on the bus i didn't have a car so i would ride the bus to and from work and i would i would have my laptop and i'd be editing my movie on the bus so I just I just have that drive to go and keep going, which at a certain point, like this last year has been like, man, do you have that drive for the rest of your life? Like when do you, and it has kind of run out. So now I have to think smarter, not harder and find people to help me with the process because I just can't do it that way anymore. But my wife was super supportive. I mean, in fact, and so is Daniel's wife. Daniel's wife has been so supportive. He literally had his, well, his wife literally had twin boys like months before he went to rebel without a crew to star as father Gill, like dude left a brand, a wife with two kids at home to fly to Austin, Texas and film for two months where he, a grown ass man lived on an, like an abandoned ranch eating the leftovers from the lunch that the crew got. Like he would take their leftovers cause he couldn't go and order food. He couldn't Uber food out to this ranch. So he would take everyone's leftovers and go hide in this dirty old ranch and eat them and sleep there. Like we just, we just do the wildest, weirdest stuff to get these things made. And I think it all just boils down to like telling yourself it's going to be worth it in the end and having the supportive people around you to that you hear the confidence in that <laughs> i'm just like maybe i don't know if it's going to be worth it but i'm just going to keep going <laughs> but also having those supportive people <laughs> the pitch gets higher and higher i had a conversation with a friend of mine a few weeks ago and we both were like man we would be so much more further along if we each had wives and yeah. so we're like what it, maybe we could be each other's wives and then we can't schedule a time to meet because we're both so overwhelmed and busy <laughs> but i just like i hear this narrative a lot right it's like supportive spouses and i think it's not that arc and i don't have supportive spouses i would never consider that an issue but it's there there is this trend of like the ability to either start off your career and build up a salary position where you get to be financially stable and then you can kind of experiment after that or you have a spouse or a partner who has that non-industry job right yes. that has the stability and it allows the other partner to to play a little bit i mean there's no question there i actually wanted to ask Alric a question to see how Josh would react to it. Alric, how do you stay so positive? Tell Josh and I how, you, how to do it. How to yeah, like, give the, us some lessons. I don't know. I mean, I, I think I'm just constantly trying to reevaluate my goals and, and setting my own expectations, you know? Love like, that. I think 
like I really wanted to make another movie quickly after I made my first feature, but then I, I had my second, well, first I had my first kid when I was finishing post on my first feature and now I just had my second kid. So now I'm just like, well, look, you have two kids who are like both under two or under three. So you're like, ah, I don't know. Maybe I'll just like take the pressure off. I don't make a movie for another, another two years. Like that's not a big deal, you know? And so I'm, I'm just sort of, trying to like get myself set up for like when I am ready to make a movie that I have like lots of good content. So I'm starting keeping continuing to write and, you know, trying to position myself to be in a position where position myself to position where I'm able to make my next movie, you know, I think and then just being happy with that, you know, and like being, being okay with it and like being like, yeah, like whatever, I don't need to make my next movie for the next what X amount of years, but I'll, I'll make it eventually. And that's all that really matters. And you know, that, that, that isn't quitting. That's just like, you know, kind of trying to be rational with what you have to work with. That's amazing. So I've been reading <laughs> this year. I've also been reading like a lot of self-help books and stuff like that. And, and oh, nice. I, yeah, and I'm not that person. I'm always the person who would have, would have in the past been like, are you serious? Just go do the thing. Like start why you don't need to read all this stuff about, you know, how to set goals and how to level up and whatever, like what's it, Tony Robbins or whatever. That's when I was a kid, I'm like, Oh my God, no way. And now I'm the guy who's listening to them in, as audiobooks as I, you know, take my kids to school in the morning. And one of the things that I have found though, is setting these goals and like really visualizing what that means has been extremely helpful to me. And it's, well, it hurts me it hurts my natural instinct to just want to go like, all right, today, here's what I can get done. And I just like, right. I baby step it till like all the way through the process. I am a baby step person. Like, what can I do right now? And that has always been helpful. But as I think, as I've gotten older and as I finished things, I'm now like less into the baby steps because I've already done that. I've already made a bunch of movies. I've already you know, sort of done the things I set out, but now I'm like, well, what was the, what was the payoff? What was the actual goal of doing that? And why didn't I set it? And so like literally visualizing, what would it be like, like sitting down and meditating? I don't have another word for it, but literally meditating and being like, what would it be like to be on set of a $3.2 million movie right now? Like today, what would that feel like if I was on set? Who would I be talking to? Who would I be calling right now? What would I, you know, I sound like Tony Robbins. I hate this shit, but I, it really helps me because it really makes me go like, okay, there's a way to get there. I mean, if I can visualize it and someone has done it before and done it way more, like Robert Rodriguez is making $200 million movies. He's waking up and going to those sets. How did he get there? Like, what was, what does it feel like to be Robert Rodriguez today and having hung out with the dude, talk to him, you know? being nerds about cameras, like having those moments where, you know, we could, we, we could, I could feel that he was a human being. Now I'm going like, okay, how do I visualize that? How do I get to that spot? Or even doing it with smaller things. Like I'm in the process of writing this. We're going to do like a, because this movie abscess is taking so long to sort of get off the ground, which I knew it would. And that's fine. We're like, well, what can we do in this moment? Which is, you know, we're going to do another feature, but we're going to use a lot of the, Things we learned on Little Lucha and the Big Deal while still kind of getting this rebel mentality in a bigger sense, you know, making the like $100,000 movie. Does that literally mean $100,000? I don't know, but we're going to budget it like it is. Like, what would it cost us to hire an editor? What would it cost us to get music for it and all of that? So anyway, long story short, I have been visualizing this. Like, what is it like to make this movie? What 
will I be doing two months from now to be on set? Like, how will I make that happen? Well, and I know we have to go in a minute, but just to press that a little further, I'm also a baby step person. I'm a trans, very transactional, transactional. I'm very like, this is my to do list. Let's knock a bunch of things off. Right. That is very. Yeah. Literally, like, I mean, you know, no one can see this or no one can see this when they're listening, but this is my book of to do's. Yeah. Like every day I, I write, it. I write five things I need to get done, three things I got done and one thing I'm thankful for every day. Okay. Wow. That, that's a good it's idea amazing. actually for me, but, and I'm taking notes by what you're saying, because I, I do agree that it's about goal setting, but how do you not take the goal and break it down into little pieces and you have make to. it into to-do list items like you. Yeah, have so, to, so you have to. So you have to do that. But I think that's easier when you know where you're going. Like what? So okay. as so like just to use Garage Route, which is this new script we're writing and, and we're going to go into production on this year. We took it and we're like, well, what is the goal? Like, what's the end goal? What's if we had it done and we were, uh, you know, festival circuit was over. Where where does it where does it end? You know, you guys know filmmaking never ends. They're like our babies and we continue to talk about them and it never goes. But what is like a what is a time when we can say like this is finished and then worked my way backwards in a very like macro way where I'm like, OK, this is when it's done. This is what post-production or post-post-production looks like. This is what post-production looks like. This is what production looks like. This is what pre-production looks like. This is what writing the script and idea in it looks like. And then I'm like, oh, that's where I am. Okay, so now how do I move forward through that? And then I can start to baby step, but I always have this macro look of like, oh, it's like here's where the here's where the production happens. And I can start to almost like put in my baby steps and think about them. Like that's what the meditation on it helps me with, where I'm like, I'll just it's it's arbitrary. I'll literally sit down and be like, what if I was on the third day of being on set today? What would that look like? And I start to think about like, oh, you know, what'd be awesome is if we have a scene where the dude rides his motorcycle into the bar. That would be awesome. I bet we could do that. We could have a scene where he rides. Then I'm like, well, I never wrote that into the script. Let's go back. Let's go back to the pre-production and write that into the script or the idea phase. And it's it's this whole thing where the end, the the, the beginning starts to be justified by the end and the middle and all these different pieces kind of come together like a puzzle. But when you do a puzzle, yeah, you may look for the edges, but you don't know what edge you're looking for. And so for me, like until you start to pull it all together to me, I'm like right now with this project, it's just, I just dumped the bucket and flipped them over. That's like, that's as far as I've gotten. So now I'm like looking for a couple edges. How do I make those? And they may be at the end of the movie or they may be in the middle or they may be some, you know, like somewhere else, but I'm kind of figuring all out or just anchors is another word i'm hearing too yeah like just something to hang on to all right with your permission i say we just ask one of the final sure. questions maybe our favorite one i don't i think it's also your favorite one do you want to ask it and we'll find out if it's the same no you asked you, you ask it first i'm not sure if it's i don't know what your favorite one is so you ask it oh mine is what's the best filmmaking advice or like career or life advice you've ever nice. received Oh, that I've ever received. Oh, that's really interesting. If, if you did, if you feel you dispensed advice better than you have received <laughs> it, that you could also share that too. Well, okay. Just so honestly, advice. I mean, I'm going to go right back to this because the, the notebook thing, the, the five, three, one thing I do was advice I received at some point. I don't even know where from, but whoever I, wherever I heard that, whoever said, write down five things you want to get done today, then put three things that you're that you're happy you got done. And then one thing you're thankful for that has been like immensely helpful for me in my life ever since I started that right before Rebel Without a Crew. And I have continued to do it ever since it's been years of doing this now. And it is it's helpful not only in my like filmmaking, but just in my life, like literally every day where I like it makes me 
feel pride in simple things like driving to work where I'm like, you know what? I don't feel like doing Jack today, but I have to drive to work. I'm making that one of my things to do. And I could just cross <laughs> that off right when I get there. So it makes you a little bit more like thankful for the little things. I also, this is, this is really weird, but Robert Rodriguez on, on rebel told me uh, it's in the show. He has, he said this really, really cheesy thing, but he said, he said, dance with creativity and let it take the lead. And it's so cheesy and so dumb, but I love it because it really like made me go like, okay, so you're telling me that the dude who made Sin City, the dude who made some of my favorite movies ever is a total artsy fartsy, like emo dude. And it made me just go like, okay, embrace that. Like if he can make that stuff, I'm going to embrace my creative emo side. I mean, I am that kid. I was that emo kid playing guitar in his room by himself, writing like, you know, pop punk music like crying over girls like that whole like that guy and at a certain point especially like having kids and stuff like that you kind of lose a little bit of that emo creativity but when robert said that i was like dude don't ever lose that like stay the emo creative guy because that's where you're in your comfort zone and people want to see that amazing okay josh tell people where should they go if they want to support you should they do you have a website i do all that stuff wherever you wherever people should do yeah, so I'm revamping my website. It's joshstifter.com. And we're also going to be pushing, my company is Flush Studios. We're going to be pushing a Flush Studios website out. It's like kind of a nothing site right now, but that's, but joshstifter.com, you're going to see, you could see like where my movies are and stuff like that. I mean, obviously the best way is to just Google search the movies if you're interested, because like The Good Exorcist is on Tubi. I mean, well, Greywood's Plot and The Good Exorcist are both on Tubi. Yeah, all my short film or a lot of my short films are on my YouTube channel, which is flush studio at flush studios on youtube but go watch graywood's plot and the good exorcist and there's half of you are gonna absolutely hate them half of you are absolutely gonna love them but that's the kind of movie they are and just like embrace that low budget fun filmmaking amazing do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes jump over to our patreon page at patreon.com mmih and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just 199 a month that's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on itunes that you can listen to whenever you please but without any more blibber blabber back to the show liz what do you remember about our talk with josh just that i like him i mean there's nothing really prominent about the conversation other than i've had a few chats with him now and i think we're neurotic and offbeat in similar ways. And I really like that. But it was just uh, he and I connected on Twitter. <laughs> and oh, we, nice. I think we were kind of ranting about similar things and realized we had common fears and anxieties about our own careers. And so I just I think of him as a comrade. You know, that's that's what I remember about the conversation. What about you? I remember him being so full of energy and so full of the indie spirit and that like, you know, he just figures it out. He just makes it happen. And like, it doesn't seem like he really worries about how, you know, or like even where the movies are going to be consumed in a big way. But yeah, you know, it's one of those things where, yeah, it's, it was just interesting to like feel his energy and his positivity and like that, like, yeah, I'm just going to make my movies and, you know, figure out how to fundraise for them. And I've got my family and I got my kids and, you know, I just make it work all within together, you know? And it's just like, what a beautiful thing. I think he also has a day job, I believe if I remember correctly. So yeah, it's just like all the things it's just like the same position I'm in, like where there's all the things to be done and he manages to do all the things. And it's like, sometimes I wonder like how, 
in the world could I possibly do all the things? But somehow you do them, you know, and now that I have children, now it's like my biggest fear is like, can I still do all the things with children? Can I still make my movies? Can I still have my day job? Can I still be creative? Can I still do this and also be a father? And he is living proof that you can. So that was very exciting for me. But also, I think just in general, yes, like I think I've had the same fears, especially before giving birth, but I don't have those anxieties anymore. And I think it's because and maybe you're not there yet with BB, but like. Colin is like this weird little artist. My son who's almost five. Like he's like a dance, like no one's watching, like express yourself ham. And he just makes me, he like reminds me that you can be an artist in anything you do. And just to keep that, keep protecting that creativity. And your kids can remind you in other things like good art, good food, whatever it is can remind you to protect those like weird goofy sides of you. So use your kids is what I'm saying. Exploit the spirit of your children to keep yourself alive, Auric. Nice. Here to hear first, people. Exploit your children. <laughs> In other news, it's time to move on to our Yo the Expert segment, which is handmade homespun from our producer, Eric Toms. He puts forth a question that he thinks we would be an expert on or at least expects us to talk about for a few minutes. And here is that question. I've made a few shorts and a feature. I'm gearing up for my next production. I'm thinking of using a casting director. Up until now, I've always just cast my friends or or people they have recommended. I'm worried hiring a casting director will be a lot of money and that they'll be just sending me their friends. What am I really getting for my money? Hmm. Alric, what do you think? Well, they don't, he doesn't specify this is, if this is for a short or a feature, but I'll, I'll just assume it's for a feature. Let's say feature. Yeah. But yeah, I feel like, you know, I've worked with a casting director a few times, um, never for a project project that's like happened besides one short film where we had a casting director, which was really helpful, but we didn't have to pay for that casting directors. That was was a favorite thing, which was really great. But yeah, I don't know. I I guess I I feel like I wouldn't worry about them sending you their friends because that's just not what a cast director does, you know? And if they did, then they would probably be sending really great friends who you'd want to be in your movie. So like, that's not really a, I wouldn't worry about that part of it. I would think that if you can strike a good deal with the casting director where you don't necessarily have to pay them very much up front, you know, or in some cases, not any, which, you know, is depends on who you're working with and, and the relationship, right? It's all these things. And I mean, I guess it's up to debate. It's debatable whether or not you're, you should feel comfortable with working with a casting director with no upfront charge. You know, I'm sure Liz has her own thoughts about this. I think it all kind of depends on, on where you're at and who, and who you're talking with. And if they're, if you have a, a connection with them, you know, and if, and if you're willing to accept that work in that way, but I think to some degree, it's like, if you're, if you're trying to raise, if you need the, the actors to, to raise the money to make the movie and your casting director is willing to help you on that goal goal. And with the understanding that they're going to hit, get it paid a rate once the movie is made. then to me, that seems reasonable, but I mean, that's not always going to be, the right way to go. And like, if someone wants a, a portion of their fee up front, then like that is totally understandable too. I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to describe because like, you, you, they're not going to guarantee that they're going to find the cast that you want for your movie. Right. They're just going to help you on your process of casting and the access that they will bring you is going to be greater than you'll have on your own. And it's, and they're only a boon and a help. And they're like, kind of like, it's just like another crew member. They're kind of like a tool to help you 
cast the movie and it's like up to you to how you're going to utilize that tool and that, that service, you know? So yeah, I definitely think they're worth it. You know, as long as you find somebody who's you're, you know, a good fit for the project, you know, for you personally and for what you're looking for. And then also if you have the budget to, to cover it anyways, Liz, what do you think? No, I agree. If you can't afford to do something, you have to do it yourself. And I, I think that casting directors deserve to be paid it is similar to what you're saying in creative ways, but I paid for a casting director for this project for one cast attachment because I really wanted to work with that crew member who had the expertise, who could support us, who could help us along. You know, in just a few hours, we gave her a list of actors that we all agreed upon and she got avails for all of them for the summer. You know, it's like I'm not in a place where every agent or manager is going to respond to my email. When I suggested to her that I really wanted someone to read for the role, she said, no, 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 no. That person used to do a weekly show at a really famous comedy club like they're not going to read. That would be insulting. Like they have intel on the tiers of actors and kind of whether someone is offer only or whether they'd read or whether you should meet them for coffee beforehand. There is kind of these imaginary strata in the world of talent and casting and casting directors have access to that data. Anyway, highly encourage people working with casting directors. I think they're tremendous assets. And I would say for sales, for production companies, for investors, the number one question they're going to ask is cast. And the number two question is going to be genre. And I would say, you know, it's like, unless you have really meaningful data about why a cast member who's not like commercially viable will make your film money. The data from a casting director is incredibly helpful in terms of who you should go out to and who's going to have value for your film. Yes, Eric, hire a casting director if you can afford one. Boom. Now, boomity boom. So anyone out there, do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you hate casting directors? Do you love them? Do you want to marry them and have children with them? Let us know. Send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Check out the International Screenwriters Association. It's an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through the numbers of a pro- through the number of programs they offer, numbers and number of programs they offer, including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals, consultation courses, contests, and their top 25 writers list. Head on over to networkisa.org to sign up for free to- today. Thanks to Josh Stifter for coming on the show, to our editor, Jeff Freimuth, for doing the editing, to California Jones for handling all of our social media. Thanks to our producer, Eric Tomps, for just being awesome and for submitting questions and just, you know, helping us out. Thanks to all of you for listening and talk to you all next week. 